Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, there's a new article that um, I wrote that dropped today on Mormonism and classical theism. Check that out, theparticularbaptist.net. Um, and also if you're watching on our YouTube channel, um, Go ahead and subscribe, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, and hit the bell to be notified of any new content that we put up there. And with that, we're going to dive into our discussion today. We are returning to the Orthodox, or I'm sorry, an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. We've, I actually forgot we did this. Um, I was reminded the other day about it because uh, we took a break for so long, and then I even got the chapters wrong on where we were. Um, so we're back on track. We're on chapter 10. Um, so we're two chapters away from finishing this. And uh, then we have another series that we might start um, before too long. Um, but chapter 10, the third part of man's thankfulness, the law of God. Um, so question 97. Um, what is the law of God? Answer the Decalogue or 10 commandments. And question 98, how are these commandments divided into two tables? Wherefore, the former delivered in four commandments tells us how we ought to behave ourselves toward God. The latter delivered in six commandments tells us what duties we owe um, to our neighbors. Um, and this is an important distinction to make uh, when we're talking about the law of God, because um, the first four talk about uh, how we're to deal with God. And it's not just how we deal with God in any sense. It's really talking about corporate worship, how we're to who are we to worship, first of all, um, and then how we're to worship God, like with the Lord's Day and how we're speaking of God correctly, not taking his name in vain. So the, all these have to do with corporate worship, because our duty to God must come first before our duty to anything else. It really flows from that um, that love and understanding of who God is. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the first commandments, even though they do primarily have to do with worship, can apply to other things. Like when we're talking about um, loving God first, that applies to really everything in life. Um, but then there are specific commandments for corporate worship. But it's really our duty to God. And then we have our duty to man, which how we're to treat our fellow neighbor in light of how we worship and obey God. And those flow naturally from our understanding of, of God and um, how we worship him. So we love God first, then we love and treat our neighbor um, in accordance with that. All right, question 98, or 99. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? I am Jehovah the Lord, your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it's interesting, Collins will kind of quote from, I think it's from Exodus uh, 20. He'll put little snippets of scripture in here and then kind of expound upon it as he um, goes along. But really, this is setting the preface to um, the rest of the commandments. The law of God is ruling over us, and it's coming from God himself, and it carries that authority. It's like when we talk about where the authority of the word of God itself comes from, it comes with that authority because it comes from God himself. So his law um, obviously follows from that. And because God is God, he has the right to tell us what to do, right? We see this in Romans 9. God has the right to do what he wants with his creation, and we do not have the right to talk back to him. This also applies to his law. We are his creation. God has the right to dictate how we are to live and how we are to conduct ourselves. And he's codified that in these Ten Commandments. And there's obviously positive laws that stem from that, um, but the moral, what we call the moral law, is foundational um, in these Ten Commandments. Um, our Confession of Faith, in chapter 19, which is on the law of God, in paragraph 5 says, The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard um, to the matter containing it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ and the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So the moral law, being moral and being, um, I guess, immutable is probably the best way to put it, 
and continuing throughout applies to everybody. And then positive law would change depending on the covenants or a specific application. But the moral law binds us. This is where uh, the Ten Commandments find us. You can see this in Romans um, 3 um, as well in chapter 2. Uh, question 100. What do we learn uh, from the preface? Three things. First, he shows us to whom the right of all rule belongs, that is, to God himself. For I am, says he, Jehovah. Secondly, he says he is the God of his people, that through the promise of his bountifulness he might allure them to obey him. And thirdly, he says, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, as if he should say, I am he who has manifested myself to you and bestowed all these, all those blessings upon you. Therefore, you are bound to show thankfulness and obedience to me. That last part is very helpful um, because we really shouldn't see obedience as a burden. It should be out of thankfulness. We want to obey God. We don't obey God because, oh, you know, I got to get up today and, you know, God says not to take his name in vain. So I just don't want to do that today. Now, it, it should be for, for those who have had their hearts transformed and have a heart of flesh, we should want to obey God out of thankfulness. And it's very interesting that God does say that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now obey me. Right. I've done these things for you. Now, in return, I ask that you, um, out of thankfulness, obey what I have commanded you today. And and that's codified in, in his covenant that he makes with uh, the people of Israel in the Old Covenant. Uh, and then finally, question 101, do these things belong to us? Answer, they do, because they figuratively comprehend and imply all the deliverances of the church. And further, this was a type of our wonderful deliverance achieved in Christ. So you can see the there's typology coming out here, right? There's a uh, a type, which is what we see here, and then there's the anti-type, which is fulfilled in the church and in Christ. So there is a parallel that we can see here, and not to mention the law of God still does apply to us. These parallels um, can definitely, uh, do definitely exist. Sean, you want to add anything before you tackle your questions? Um, No, I think we'll just move on. Uh, right. Question 102, what is the first commandment? Answer, you shall have no other gods before me. Question 103, what does God require in the first commandment? Answer, that as dearly as I render the salvation of my own soul, so earnestly should I shun and flee all idolatry, sorcery, enchantments, superstitions, praying to saints, or any other creatures and should rightly acknowledge the only true God, trust in him alone, submit and subject myself to him with all humility and patience, look for all good things from him alone. And lastly, with the entire affection of my heart, uh, of my heart, love, reverence and worship him, uh, of my heart, love, reverence, reverence and worship him, so that I am ready to renounce and forsake all creatures rather than to commit the least thing that may be against his will. So this is a, uh, a fairly uh, lengthy interpretation of the first commandment. Um, and we might be tempted to ask, is this a little bit, is this a little bit overkill that all this is contained in the, uh, the first commandment? Isn't it just saying that we shouldn't acknowledge other gods, that there's only one God? Um, but the meaning of the commandments is actually a little bit more broad than just the um, just uh, this what's literally in the statement itself. Um, for example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that lusting is a violation of the commandment against adultery. Now, the commandment of, of against adultery, as we'll read, doesn't say lust anywhere in there, but um, contained in that is the prohibition against uh, against lust. So. Um, these commandments do encompass a little bit more than just what's literally in the sentence. So I think all of this is, is correct, is good that to, for God to be God, for us to have no other gods before him, it means that we need to treat him as God. And that includes all the rights and um, uh, that he has all the rights and that uh, we should worship him as he ought and we should, as he ought to be worshiped and we should rely on him and trust in him as he ought to be relied upon, trusted in. Um, question 104 um, is a little interesting because it it's what is idolatry. 
I almost think that it should have been moved to after the, uh, the second commandment, but I will read through it anyway. Uh, 104, what is idolatry? Answer, it is in place of that one God, or besides that one true God, who has manifested himself in his word and works, to make or imagine and account any other thing in which I rest my hope and confidence. So idolatry is to worship something that is not God. Um, and there's, there's two types of idolatry that are, we could broadly talk about like physical and, and non-physical. I could literally have a, a statue of, of some God and be bowing down to it. And that would be physical idolatry, but I can, I can turn things, um, or, or perhaps a better way of saying it, I can turn concepts into idolatry. Like I could be idolatrous and seeking to be married that I've made marriage my all in all. And I need, uh, like I'm submitting everything to, to getting married and forgetting about God. Um, so I, idolatry doesn't have to necessarily be this physical thing. You can change, you can exchange, um, the love of God for anything really. Um, and just, uh, just a couple of verses about idolatry. Uh, Isaiah 42, eight, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. And then um, Jeremiah 10, three through five, uh, for the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the ax, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. So God is really going into the foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry is foolish because of the first commandment. There is only one God. So when you worship something, when you give um, what is due to God to something else, you're, you're, you're being foolish. And it's especially foolish with these idols that are taken care of uh, by man's hands that require man's hands to uphold them. Like, why would you worship something that you have to uphold as opposed to God who holds up, upholds you? Yeah, that's a that's a very good point, especially about, you know, physical and heart idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, I think, the as we'll, I think, see later on, um, the Pharisees were experts at not abiding by the physical idolatry, but they were experts at um, committing idolatry in the heart. You know, following the letter of the law, but not following the spirit of the law and what the law was really referring to and what it was discussed. And then inter and also introducing their own traditions and making them on par with the law of God. Um, so both of those tenets of physical idolatry and heart idolatry are very important uh, when we're talking about it. And the law of God is covering both of those, not just physical idolatry. Um, and I think the first two commandments kind of play off of one another in that way. Um, so yeah, as, point. as we'll go through, we'll, we'll recognize that a lot of these commandments are really interrelated, um, and they, they rely on each other, but. yep, that's exactly right. All right. Question, uh, 105 and I'll just, uh, read 105 to 108 and then we can discuss these. Uh, what is the second commandment answer? You shall not make any graven image nor the likeness of anything which is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, nor in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and visit the sins of the fathers among the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and show mercy to thousands of them who love me and keep my commandments. Question 106. What does the second commandment require? that we should not express or represent God by any image or shape and figure or worship him in any other way that he has commanded him in his word to be worshipped. Uh, question of seven, may images or resemblance of God be made at all? Answer, God neither ought nor can be represented by any means. As for things created, although it is lawful to depict them, God nevertheless forbids their images to be made or possessed in order to worship or honor either them or God by them. In question 108, but may not images be tolerated in churches which may serve as books to the common people? Answer, no, for that would make us wiser than God, who will have his church to be taught by the, live, the lively preaching of his word and not with speechless images. So now we come to 
the second commandment, and this is um, actually an area of controversy among Christians. There are those who take different views on, um, you know, graven images and what that means. Um, I take a view, and Sean can be free to, you know, pipe in and disagree. I take a view that there are, um, that images in and of itself is not the issue here. Um, that it's not the images in and of, you know, per se that's being forbidden. It's making them for the purpose of worshiping. Um, and that seems to be consistent with what Collins is talking about, although uh, he does, you know, block off certain things like making images of, of the divine. Um, he does block off. Personally, um, I think it's it's best not to do that um, because we don't know what God looks like. God does not have a body like men. God is a divine spirit, and to, de to depict him in a creaturely form like that um, I think can lead us down a road that is not helpful. It can put images of God in our mind that we might end up worshiping or thinking of God in that way instead of just thinking of him as a spirit, which we can't comprehend in our finite minds anyways. Um, now, with that said, with that principle that it's really about worship and not about images, I am okay personally with uh, depictions of Christ or images of Christ, given that he was a man and we can represent him um, in a sense like we were because uh, in his human nature, not according to his divine nature. So I think there is a place for that. Um, you know, maybe in, in academia, certainly not in worship, um, but I think there are places where, where that can be permitted and that's not contradictory to the second commandment. Um, I want to read John Gill. He has a, uh, a, very, uh, a very good section from his commentary in Exodus. Uh, he says, an image of anything graven by art or man's device cut out of wood or of stone. And so anything that was molten or cast into a mold or form engraved by men, and this in order to be worshipped, for otherwise images of things might be made for other uses and purposes, as a cherubim over the mercy seat and the brazen serpent and images and impressions on coin, which we do not find the Jews themselves scrupled to make use of in Christ's time on that account, though they vehemently opposed the setting up of any images of the Caesars or emperors in their temple because... They seemed to be placed there as deities and had a show of religious worship. However, any image of God was not to be made at all, since no similitude was ever seen of him, or any likeness could be conceived. And it must be a gross piece of ignorance, madness, and impudence to pretend to make one, and great impiety to make it in order to be object to be the object of religious worship, on which account not any image or the image of anything whatever was to be made. So making images of the divine um, is, I don't, I don't think is best. Um, could there be an argument made? Maybe, but I don't see that. And I think it's best just to not do it in, at least for an abundance of caution. Because um, again, we can, in our own finite minds, we try to grasp God as he is like us. Um, that can lead us down a bad road. That can lead us down a bad road if we're not careful. Now, one thing that's interesting in uh, question 108, Collins says um, he seems to forbid any type of images at all in worship, what, whatever that might be. I Maybe he brings us out in other places. I don't know. Um, personally, I think that, you know, not, that there can be certain images used not for the purpose of worship, but as a help. Um, I mean, the Lord's Supper in the baptism are in a sense, an image of the cross and what Jesus did. And they do represent uh, Christ, Christ's work and remind us of what he did and cause us to think about what he did in a creaturely form. And those are all images, right? That, that, it, that are being represented there. Um, so I think that's helpful, you know, in our own church, we, in our own church building, that is, we have, you know, a cross on the back, just kind of, pointing to what Christ did and pointing to what happened, but it's not used uh, in any of our liturgy at all. I think things like that are permissible. So I think I would disagree with, um, with Collins here in terms of uh, excluding any type of image whatsoever, because then you would have to exclude things like the Lord's Supper in the sacraments themselves, which are images of um, divine action. Um, I don't know, Sean, if you want to add anything. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in general agreement with you. I might be a little bit stronger on the uh, the images of Christ, but in general, I'm in agreement. For me, the way that I think about it is, um, I believe it's it's in the same chapter, Exodus 20. It might be the next chapter, is where you get the uh, the commandment to build the ark with with the angels, um, with the cherubim on the ark. So whatever your interpretation of this commandment is you have to reconcile it with the fact that god then commands them to make an image um now the israelites aren't bowing down and worshiping those images which is i think is obviously the violation but the fact that they are there and are technically a part of israelite worship and god doesn't command this because the the tabernacle is part of the worship of god it's not being worshiped but it's part of the worship of god um I think this leads us to, or it, it moderates our view to an appropriate level about what the um, the uh, second commandment is talking about. Um, in terms of making images of Christ or God, I have called up here. Um, this is, I think, this is Deuteronomy four, um, and I'll read verses fifteen and sixteen. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day which the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So God is saying at least one of the reasons why he didn't appear to them in a form was because they would be tempted to make an image out of it. Um, so yeah, that's we helpful. Should- um, yeah. So I would, yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah. that's really why the Israelites were, uh, at least in terms of applying it to the divine essence. Um, but that's probably why they were trying to make the golden calf, right? They didn't see God and they yeah. wanted something they could tangibly hold. Look, this is who brought you out of land of Egypt, a creature, yeah. you know, something they could tangibly hold because God was seemingly gone. Moses was up on the mountain for a long time and wait, where's God? We don't see him. But we'll make we'll make something in our own image that we can tangibly hold. So yeah, they would very much, and not to mention their sinful history uh, mm-hmm. with idolatry. But yeah, they would be tempted to make an image of of the divine if they could see God, you know, as a man would. Which speaks to the folly of religions like yeah. Mormonism, which make images of God actually has a God actually is a man, you know, and yeah. they've made clearly an image of the divine. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, moving on to question 109. What is the third commandment? Answer. You shall not take the Lord or the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Question 110. What does God require in the third commandment? Answer, we must not use his name despitefully or irreverently, not only by cursing or falsely swearing, but also by unnecessary oaths. We must not be partakers of these horrible sins in others, either by silence or consent. We must always use the sacred and holy name of God with great devotion and reverence, that he may be worshipped and honored by us with a true and steadfast confession an invocation of his name that this should be the case in all our words and actions. So behind this commandment um, is the idea that God is holy and to be honored, right? The, the reason why we would, we would honor him is because he is actually worthy of this honor, right? It's in, he is glorious and, um, and uh, worthy. So we should, we should, treat his name as uh, worthy. Uh, we shouldn't treat it as something trivial. We shouldn't be invoking it only if we stub our toe if, or uh, things happen to us in our life that uh, make us angry. And ultimately, that's an accusation against God there. We're invoking his name, whether we realize it or not, um, because something's gone wrong. And um, we are recognizing the good providence of God in that moment. Um, and the unbelievers hate God anyway, so they they have no issue invoking his name there. Um, 
And then I did want to talk about briefly, um, it's not necessarily brought up here. This is something that not merely believers can do, but unbelievers. I've heard the uh, statement that um, to take God's name is in vain is like uh, a woman taking her uh, her husband's name, right? It's taking a name in that sense, right? Um, and I think the commandment is a little bit broader than that. It's not merely those that would profess um, to be Christian or Jews at the time. But um, anyone can take the name of the Lord, their God, in vain um, by emptying it of its significance and using it however trivially they want. Um, Moving on to question 111. Is taking God's name in vain by swearing or cursing so grievous a sin that God is also angry with those who do not forbid or hinder it with all their ability? Answer, surely it is most grievous. There is no sin greater or more offending to God than the despising of his sacred name. Wherefore, he even commanded the sin to be punished with death. Um, This is an interesting commandment because you will note that uh, it says explicitly, the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. None of the other commandments have that specific phraseology there. Um, Now, one might... Uh, someone insecure in the faith or someone who doesn't know might therefore conclude that this is some sort of unforgivable sin here that, Oh, well, God won't hold me guiltless if I take his name in vain and I've taken his name as vain. Therefore I'm, I'm unsavable at this point, but um, the new Testament wouldn't have us believe that this is the unforgivable sin. Um, and we have to remember that all the law actually curses us. We are under the curse of the law. If we are not in Christ, but Christ has taken the curse of the law upon himself and bore it in our place. So we are no longer under the curse of the law. And that includes this commandment. This commandment is a curse, just like the rest of the law is a curse upon us. But Christ bore that. So even if you have taken the Lord's name in vain, you are not beyond hope because of this commandment. Um, But you do need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Um, Question 112 May a man swear reverently by the name of God. Yes, he he may, when lawful magistrates or necessity require it. By this means, the faith and truth of any man or thing to be ratified and established, both the glory of God may be advanced and uh, the safety of others procured. This kind of swearing is ordained by God's word and therefore was well used by the fathers, both in the Old and New Testament. Um. So I suspect this is here, um, there's similar language in our confession, but I suspect this is here mostly as a reaction against the Anabaptists who threw off all types of oath swearing whatsoever. Um, And this is more of a clarification that no, there is actually appropriate times to swear oaths. And where they get this from is, do I have it here? Oh, I should really have it here. Um... I apologize, and I should call up... um, Oh, no, I do have it here. I apologize. Um, So uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So this, at least at first glance, appears to be a banning on all oaths. Uh, Although you're going to run into problems with that interpretation because uh, Paul explicitly calls on God to be his witness. Romans 1.9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. So he's calling upon God to be his witness. And then 2 Corinthians one twenty three. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. And obviously, we here do not believe that there's any contradictions in the Bible. So there needs to be a way of reconciling what's going on here. And if we look back at the context, um, you'll note that uh, Jesus says, uh, where, where is it? Um, uh, uh, because you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Um, so it's not, it's not something that's in your power to do. It's, it's looking forward almost. Um, and then uh, he quotes saying, uh, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. So this is something that's forward looking, not backward looking. When Paul is um, invoking God, he's invoking on, um, on something that's already happened or something that's already in the past. Jesus's prohibition here is against um, uh, saying you're going to do something when really you don't necessarily know that it's true. It's not in your power to keep it. Um, and he's warning that this is unwise to do. So I think that's the appropriate biblical distinction there. And I think the uh, Anabaptists were ultimately wrong for doing uh, doing away with all oaths. It is perfectly reasonable if you are called into the courtroom um, to take an oath, assuming that it's um, you're, you're testifying on somebody's behalf. You're testifying about what you've seen. You're testifying about what you know, something that's already happened. It is perfectly permissible to uh, take an oath and say, yes, uh, as God is my witness, I have, I've seen this, I've heard this, I know this, whatever the case might be. Um, question 113, is it lawful to swear by saints or other creatures? Answer, no. A lawful oath is an invocation of God, whereby we desire that he as the only searcher of hearts, bear witness to the truth and punish the swearer if he knowingly swears falsely. No creature deserves this honor. Um, so having the background of what we've already said, that when you're, you're taking an oath, you're, you're swearing by, um, uh, by God as a testimony to something that you've done. Why would you therefore swear by any saint or any creature? Can, do saints know? Do the saints know your heart? Would you invoke the saints to, he's, he's, testi uh, he's testifying on my behalf. I invoke him. I swear by him. The saint doesn't necessarily know. The saint's dead. Um, or I would assume the context of this is, is invoking dead saints, but I suppose it might not be. Um, we shouldn't be swearing by uh, these creatures. It ultimately gives them what's due to God. It's a form of idolatry because God is the one who's omniscient and all just. So when we invoke God, he certainly knows whether or not what I'm saying is true. And um, he's just. So if I swear falsely, he will punish me on that great day of judgment. He will, he will bring it up. So uh, the reason why we invoke God is because he is the one that we w would want to invoke in that uh, circumstance there. Um, so that's, that's why we don't want to... Um, invoking uh invoking creatures there it's interesting too when uh like in hebrews 6 god only swears by himself because yes. it says there's no one else greater yeah. to swear by so yeah. god never stoops down to the level of the creature yeah. or to the level of creatures in the sense that he um swears by any creature or any of his creation it's always by himself as a supreme being mm -hmm. um so that is important. And then you go to places like Ecclesiastes 5, which talk about make sure you you swear an oath to the Lord. One, don't swear it rashly. Think about what you're doing before you do it. And then make sure you, you follow through on it. Um, so it's, it's a serious thing to invoke, either make an oath to the Lord or to invoke um, an oath by the Lord. Um, we have to be very careful or we'd fall into violating the third commandment. All right. Uh, question 114. What is the fourth commandment? Uh, remember that you keep holy the Sabbath day. You shall labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no manner of work, you nor your son or your daughter, nor your manservant nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day and Howled it. And I'll read question 115. What are we taught by uh, what are we taught by the fourth commandment? Answer that one day in seven be kept in the worship of God under the Old Testament. This was the last day of the week. But under the under the gospel changed to the first day of the week. The Lord's day is to be spent in private and in public devotion, hearing the word diligently, practicing the gospel sacrament zealously, doing deeds of charity consci uh, conscionably and resting from servile works except for cases of necessity. This was the laudable practice of the holy apostles who best knew the mind of Christ as in the time of worship. We do not find 
in all the New Testament that any gospel church in the apostles' time set any other day apart solemnly to worship but the first day. This they were right to do. For if Israel, the natural seed of Abraham, was to keep the seventh day to keep up the remembrance of their deliverance out of temporal bondage, how much more are we bound to keep the first day in remembrance of Christ's deliverance from us from of us from eternal bondage? So we see the the fourth commandment laid out here. Not only that, but also its application. Um, and I'll say up front, there is some disagreement among the team in terms of application of the Sabbath day. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but we do agree on the general principle of it's to be a holy day. It is the Lord's day. It is a day of worship, um, a day of serving him. Um, and because it is holy, it is to be set apart. That word holy does imply being set apart. Um, we see this obviously here in Exodus and other places. Um, I want to read from Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, Nehemiah bringing out very clearly uh, the importance of keeping the Sabbath holy. And this was under the old covenant. Um, but given that the Sabbath is, is, a, uh, is part of the moral law, it still applies to us today. Um, so I want to read this here. This is Nehemiah 13, 15 through 22. It says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and, our, and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. You remember, Nehemiah was essentially rebuilding Israel after the exile of Israel in uh, Babylon, like it was. No, he's trying to reestablish worship, essentially. And the people of Judah had fallen so far, they weren't remembering the Sabbath day anymore. They were working on the Sabbath day. The covenant people of God were not obeying the Sabbath day wasn't being set apart as a holy day. It was just like any other day. They got up, they went to work, they were buying and selling and do, doing their work, and, and which God had clearly forbidden. And so Nehemiah is calling the seriousness of this. I mean, even down to guarding the gates so that to make sure that people were not violating um, the Sabbath day. And so we see this applying to us today in principle. Uh, in terms of keeping the Sabbath holy, it's to be a day of worship, a day set aside where we serve God, we serve his people, we fellowship with God's people. It's not to be a day where we just get up and, you know, hey, it's just like any other day. Um, no, we're to treat it as holy. Um, and, and this also gets into discussions about positive law and moral law. We see the day of the week changing, right? It changed from Saturday, which was the original Sabbath, as noted in the Ten Commandments, to Sunday with Christ's resurrection. Um, and we would see this, uh, the, the day specifically as not being part of the moral law, but being part of part of positive law. The moral law was that God was to be worshipped. The day was uh, irrelevant. I think that's Sam Waldron talks about that, I think, in his uh, uh, discussion in the con on our confession of faith. But the Sabbath day is to be kept unto the Lord. This is the moral law. It still applies to Christians today. Um, and so it's, it's very important that, that we remember that it's something that's so easily neglected and, and forgotten, I think. So it's important that we remember this. And, and even God says in here, remember the Sabbath day. Don't forget it. Don't forget. This is the Lord's day. Keep it holy. Keep it holy.
Um, so yeah, anything to add, Sean? Yeah, I I just want to harp on that last point there that uh, because this is the commandment that is so frequently forgotten in modern American Christianity, um, because most people view it as ceremonial law, they view it as something that was done away with in the um, in the uh, with the doing away of the uh, the old covenant of the Mosaic covenant, but. Um, will note that this is in the Ten Commandments. Um, it would be very weird that the rest of the Ten Commandments are moral law, but this is the one that's ceremonial. Why is it here? That's a little odd. Um, and then we we think back to Genesis, uh, and we realize, like, actually, this is a creation ordinance. It's a creation ordinance, just like marriage. Um, so this isn't this isn't ceremonial law. It is moral law. It's binding on us today. Now it might not look exactly the way the Jews practice it because that does get into that positive law versus um, moral law dynamic where the uh, the way it was applied was a little bit different to them. But at its core, it is a it is a moral law and is to be followed um, by all. All right, moving on. Uh, question one hundred sixteen: What is the fifth commandment? Answer, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land which your Lord, which the Lord your God gives you. Um, question 117, what does God require of us in the fifth commandment? That we yield due honor, love, and faithfulness to our parents and to all those who have authority over us and submit ourselves with such obedience as is fitting to their faithful commandments and chastisements and that by our patience we endure them, their mannerisms, thinking within ourselves that God will govern and guide us by them. So the way I view this commandment actually is it's a little bit of a transition commandment, because we've now jumped from the commandments that are primarily dealing with with God, um, although I would, I would argue that the Sabbath commandment about rest would also have implication for neighbor, but now we are firmly into how do we relate to our neighbor, um, the first neighbors being our, our parents. But even in contained in this uh, commandment, there is still a pointing towards God because God is our father. And because of that, we are to honor him. And it's a reflection of that relationship in the parental relationship. That's why we're supposed to honor our parents. Our parents have been put in authority over us. We are to honor them, regardless if we understand their decisions, um, if we agree with their decisions, or even if they're ultimately wrong. We are still to honor them. Um, they've provided for us, or in, in some cases, perhaps not, if it's a neglectful parent, but even then you're to honor them. But our parents, even if we dislike them, for lack of a better word, um, they have provided for us, and we are to show them honor that uh, they cared for us when we were unable to care for ourselves. Um, and we're to always honor, um, those in authority over us, which I think is also contained, at least in some sense in this commandment, that those that are placed above us, we should honor regardless of, um, how they treat us or if they're right or wrong. Um, yes, uh, I had something else to say about this. What was, oh, um, now if they're, if they are wrong and we know that they're what they're telling us to do is sin, we're not obligated to follow, follow what they say. Obviously we're not to honor them to the point where we ignore their sin. Uh, and we are to correct them in a, uh, honoring way, but we're, uh, we're not to follow in that regard. And yet we are still to honor them. Even in that, you can always say to your parents, I will not do that. Um, it's not because I, I hate you. It's, it's because it's sin and I still honor and respect you, but I will not do that. So that's important to remember. Um, question 118. What is the sixth commandment? Answer. You shall do no murder. Uh, question 119. What does God require in the sixth commandment? Answer. That neither in thought or in gesture, much less in deed, I reproach or hate or harm or kill my neighbor, either by myself or by another and that I cast away all desire of revenge. Furthermore, that I do not hurt myself or knowingly cast myself into any danger. God has armed the magistrate with the sword as a deterrent to murder. Um, so 
interesting uh inter the first thing that jumped out at me as i read this was um the fact that it, it uh talks about yourself right that i do not hurt myself or knowingly cast myself into danger um because ultimately suicide is actually a violation of this commandment whether we recognize it or not um suicide is still the destruction of an image bearer of god it just happens to be yourself you know we in modern america might think that oh it's well it's, it's my life i get to choose what i do with it but ultimately it's not your life you were given that life by god and it's and to you or to him you belong so you don't even have the right to do away with yourself so um it's an interesting but not necessarily um uh commonly thought about application of this commandment it also explicitly says that the magistrate is the one that has the sword or the authority to to um, bear the sword. We as individual believers, except in extraordinary circumstances, don't have the right to execute justices or execute justice um, willy nilly um, or by our own prerogative. It's the civil magistrate that's been given that uh, that right. And if we take that into our own hands, even if we're right, we are essentially committing murder because it's not merely that we have to be right, but it's also through God's ordained means that um, that punishment for um, punishment for murder is uh, supposed to uh, take place or the, the, the state is supposed to bear the sword. Um, and then last point, deterrent to murder. This uh, this is um, this is a deterrent to murder. Right. If you know you're going to be killed, you're less likely to to uh, commit murder. And this is another thing that's lost in modern America. Um, and the, a lot of Christians or so-called Christians, but even a lot of Christians argue that, well, with the new covenant, we really shouldn't be supporting the death penalty. Um, that's a, that's an old, old Testament thing, but you look and the it's the Noahic covenant that actually the uh, death penalty is inaugurated under and the Noahic covenant is never done away with. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a mosaic covenant issue. It's a Noahic covenant issue, uh, which is still binding on us today. So the death penalty um, it's perfectly appropriate for the state to exercise the death penalty. And in the case of murder, it, it's actually required to whether or not it lives up to that um, lives up to that uh, command by God. Question 120, but does this commandment forbid murder only? Answer, no. In forbidding murder, God further teaches us that he hates the root, namely anger, envy, hatred, and desire for revenge, accounting them all as murder. So this is a this is another one where um, at first you might not expect these things to be encompassed under the commandment against murder. But as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, um, the, that's that is the case and rather than quote the sermon on the mount because that's the more well-known one i'll quote from first john three fifteen: whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that mur no murderer has eternal life abide abiding in him so hatred is actually thrown underneath the commandment against murder because hatred leads to murder um it's it is actually the root of murder you don't murder someone because you like them that's absurd it comes from hatred towards your brother. It's just the outward manifestation of that. Question 121. Does this commandment only require that we harm no one? Answer, no. When God condemns anger, envy, and hatred, he requires that we love our neighbor as ourselves. We must use tenderness, courtesy, patience, and mercy towards him. We must also protect him from whatever may be hurtful to him as much as we are able. Indeed, we must be so affected in mind that we do not hesitate to do good even to our enemies. Um, the verse that springs to mind, at least about the uh, the middle section here, we must also protect him, uh, is Proverbs 24, 11, deliver those that are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter because it's not enough to merely say, oh, well, I, I didn't murder my neighbor. It's like, yeah, but you could have you could have helped your neighbor in some regard and not helping them is a form of hatred. You're loving yourself more than you're loving your neighbor at that moment, even if it's not the same sort of hatred as I hate him. I'm going to murder him myself.
And for a modern application, um, a lot of times this verse is used about speaking out at abortion clinics against abortion. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that application. And more so even now with the potential um, overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, now is the time to speak out about that um, to our neighbors so that they know that uh, God condemns abortion. Amen. Yep. It's And this just speaks more to, you know, the, the, the law of God is covering the heart attitudes as well as, actually, I would say maybe even more the heart attitudes than the physical outworking, because that's like, that's where the root of those sins lie. And that's yeah. what we're going to see uh, here too with the, the seventh commandment, 122, question 122, what is the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Question 123, what is the meaning of the seventh commandment? That God hates and abominates all sexual vileness and filthiness. Therefore, we must hate and detest the same. This also means that we must live temperately, modestly, and chastely, whether we are married or single. Uh, in question 124, does God forbid nothing else in this, in this commandment but actual adultery and other external acts of sexual sin? Answer, no. Since our bodies and souls are the temples of the Holy Spirit, God will have us keep both in purity and holiness. Therefore, deeds, gestures, words, thoughts, filthy lusts, and whatever entices us to these are all forbidden. Um, so, again, this speaks to the heart attitude. What is being uh, covered here? It's not just the physical act of adultery, sexual morality, but it's also the heart's desires that lead to that. Um, we see this very clearly in Matthew 5. Uh, 27 through 30, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expounds a lot of applications of the law of, or multiple applications of the law of God as it relates to heart attitudes. Uh, he says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust, out, lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast to hell. So Jesus is saying that just the intent of the heart, which is consistent with an adulterous lifestyle, is condemned under the commandment to not commit adultery. Um, and Jesus even goes into this radical discussion about cutting, gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand, the radical nature of, of dealing with sin. Um, so it is serious business not only to commit adultery, <clears throat> excuse me, but also to, um, to lust in, in our hearts. So that follows all these different sins that are labeled here with our words, our thoughts, deeds, gestures not doing things that are um, of a sexual nature in our in any way. It's it's forbidden. Um, and it's also interesting, too, that he he references 1 Corinthians 6, talking about our bodies and, and souls are our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, this passage in 1 Corinthians is, is often misapplied, I think. Um, people, I, I think it's it's applied you know, anything that hurts the body is somehow forbidden based on this principle found in 1 Corinthians 6. And Collins does not apply it in that way. Paul doesn't apply it in that way. And I think that's a misapplication of the passage. Um, yeah, this is, Paul is specifically talking about sexual sin um, as in the seriousness of committing it in light of um, our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit. And we'll jump to uh, 125. Question 125. What is the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Question 126. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Not only those thefts and robberies which the magistrate ought to punish, but whatever evil tricks and devices where, where we seek after the goods of others and endeavor with force or by some form of deceit to convey them to ourselves. These include false weights or false, excuse me, or false or uneven measures. False advertisement, counterfeit money, extort exuberant interest, nor any other way or means of benefiting ourselves which God has forbidden. To these we may add all the covetousness and the manifold waste and abusing of God's gifts. So basically fraud, right? 
Fraud is a form of stealing. Lying in order to get some kind of gain is a form of stealing. False weights. Um, giving some kind of unjust standard that you know might benefit you more than the other person when it should be weighed equally, right? So these are all forms of stealing. These are ways of getting something that the person would have not otherwise given you or you would have not otherwise gotten if you had done so honestly. You're doing so deceitfully. You know, those types of things are all forbidden in this and are all different forms of stealing. Um, so again, it's it's covering not just me breaking into somebody's house and taking their things, but also um, deceitful practices that allow us to get things in ways that we would not otherwise be able to. And finally, question 127, what are those things which God here commands? Answer, that with my power, I help and further the commodities and profit of my neighbor, and so I so and that I so deal with him as I would desire to be dealt with myself. I am required to do my own work plainly and faithfully, that I may thereby help others who are distressed with any need or calamity. And I think uh, he's talking about um, where Paul talks about those who steal should steal no more, and they should be willing to help others with honest work. Um, so we should be looking for the good of our neighbor. We should not be looking to take from our neighbor what is rightfully theirs by unjust means. All right. Question 128. What is the ninth commandment? Answer. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Question 129. What does the ninth commandment require? Answer, that I bear no false witness against any man, neither falsify any man's words, nor backbite, nor reproach any man, nor condemn any rashly or unheard. I must avoid and shun with all care carefulness all kinds of lies and deceits as the proper works of the devil, or I will stir up against me the most grievous wrath of God. In judgments and other affairs, I must follow the truth and freely and constantly profess the matter as it indeed is, as well as defend and increase, as much in, as in me lies, the good name and estimation of others. So, um, here, what I really want to harp on is the fact that uh, I must avoid and shun with all carefulness and all kinds of lies and deceits as the proper works of the devil that ultimately this is a reflection of the devil. Uh, we know that he's the great slanderer, um, the one that lied from the beginning. Um, and when we think about this commandment, uh, one of the ways we should think about it is, do we want to be like the devil? If we are in Christ and have uh, rejected sin, do we want to be like the devil, the great enemy of God who lies and brought our entire race into the subjugation of sin? And brought death into the world. Uh, no, we don't want to be hit like him whatsoever. Um, and th that is, this is um, a reflection of his nature, and we want to reflect Christ's nature. And just a, a good verse to um, go into the fact that God really does hate lying and bearing false witness against your neighbor. Proverbs 6.15 and then uh, verse 19 these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And then one of the uh, the seven are a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brother, brethren. So someone who bears lies and, and besmirches someone's name or gets them into trouble that they were they do not deserve. That's an abomination to the Lord. And to sow discord among brethren by lying. The Lord hates that. Um this could uh, be brethren in the spiritual sense if we're, if we're Christian, but even brethren in the physical sense, even if we're not talking about believers, the Lord still hates the sowing of discord among them. That's evil, and we should, uh, we should not do it. Question 130, what is the 10th commandment? Answer, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor his wife, nor his servant, nor his maid, nor anything that is his. Question 131, what does the 10th commandment forbid? That our hearts be moved by the least desire or uh, co cogitation against any commandment of God, but that we are continually from our heart 
um, but that we continually from our heart detest all sin and delight in all righteousness. Um, and he's sort of treating it here like a, a catch-all. Um, he's not talking specifically about covetousness, but he's talking more generally. And I almost, I do almost view the um, the Tenth Commandment this way. Um, it's sort of interesting that at the end, it's now just talking about basically um, don't covet anything. Um, and this is, in my mind, the hardest commandment um, to convince yourself that um, you're keeping. All the other ones, it's very easy to say, at least externally, oh, I've kept that commandment. Um, uh, sp- uh, going back to the commandment not to murder, right? It's like, well, I, I haven't murdered. Um, we know from the study that uh, not murdering is not enough. Hatred in your heart towards your brother is a violation of this commandment. But at least on the surface level, externally, it's very easy to say, oh, I, I've kept all the commandments. But this one is the one that truly is an internal commandment. Because I, I can look at someone and I have no idea if they're covetous or not. Oftentimes it might manifest itself, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So as a heart, um, it's a commandment that's looking directly in the heart. And it, that's something that you you internally know um, whether or not you've kept it or not. And I think it's uh, interesting that when Paul talks about the commandments that convicted him, it goes to this commandment. Um, and... Uh, says that uh, thou shalt not covet produced all sorts of covetousness in him because it was probably the one that he truly couldn't avoid. Um, he could explain away the others, but this is the hardest one to explain away in terms of uh, uh, behavior. And ultimately, this is the commandment that really puts to the test. Well, all of them put to uh, us to the test in some way, but this commandment puts us to the test whether or not we actually do trust God. Because if we trust God, we know that he's provided all that we need and all that we all that we need, um, all that we deserve and all that we need. When we covet, what we're subtly saying, whether we realize it or not, is God hasn't provided me enough. I deserve something more. And that's idolatry, actually. Um, that's why in Colossians 3, 5, Paul can say, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because covetousness is ultimately saying, God hasn't provided me what I need. I need that. Um, and this gets back to the idea that all these commandments are ultimately interrelated uh, because the violation of uh, covetousness is also the violation of idolatry. But um, it's technically a, a separate manifestation of that. Um, and it is directed against your neighbor because you're desiring something of your neighbors that doesn't belong to you. Um, question 132, can they who are converted to God observe and keep these commandments perfectly? Answer, no. Even the holiest of men, as long as they live, have only small beginnings in obedience. Yet they begin with unfeigned and earnest desire and endeavor to live not according to some but with the commandments of God. Um, So this is important here because as we're reading through the law, um, our listeners or or someone listening might be, might be depressed hearing all this because they haven't kept the law perfectly. And this is a reminder that if you're a Christian, you're in Christ um, and your sins are forgiven by believing in him. He took the penalty for your sins and by believing in him, you're credited with his righteousness but also that when you sin in this life, um, you, you won't be perfect in this life. And um, that is a, a burden off your back to not have to keep the law perfectly. Um, yeah, it is, it is a great uh, burden off your back. Um, I guess moving on to question 133. Why does God require his law to be preached exactly and severely, knowing there is no man in this life able to keep it? Answer first, that we increasingly acknowledge the great proneness of our nature to sin and heartily desire forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. Second, that we do this always and so implore and crave from the Father the grace of his Holy Spirit. It is by this grace that we may be renewed day by day to the image and likeness of God. Once we depart out of this life, we will attain to that joyful perfection which is promised to us. So, 
there's there's a number of reasons that we we preach the law, right? We preach the law to the unsaved so that they uh, might recognize their sin and recognize their need for a savior, a savior, and call call out to Christ and be saved. Um, we also preach it to ourselves to be reminded of what God requires of us, um, and that we would be renewed um, when we see that we've stumbled into sin, that we might come back out of it. Um, but there's an aspect here that's brought up that's not uh, necessarily talked about that often. Um, that, uh, where was it? Um, once we depart out of this life, that we will attain to the joyful perfection, which is promised to us. Um, actually, that's not quite what I was going for there. Um, well, anyway, the uh, the thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that um, it's a reflection of God's righteousness that... Um, and that we should appreciate what we've been saved from and what we're saved to, that we're saved to a just and holy God. Um, and we as Christians should look forward to that, to spending an eternity with the God of this law, this perfect law, who is always just and always holy. And there will not be any sin or evil in his presence. And that is something to, to greatly look forward to. Amen. I will note, um, if you look at the proof texts of both, Question 132 and 133, uh, Romans 7 is being applied mm. to the believer in 132. And I think uh, in 133 as well, it's Romans seven twenty four in 133. But he applies verses 14 and 15 and also verse 22 um, to the believer. So he views as, uh, you know, being sold under sin and uh, Paul seeing this dichotomy within him as being... Uh, apply applicable to the believer um so just note that in passing all right well thank you all for joining us today and this was a long one chapter 10 was a long one um i think chapter 11 is much shorter um that's a little long too and then chapter 12 is the athen the nicene and athanasian creeds which we'll close off with when we get to that point but thank you for joining us um and for bearing with us lord willing we will be back next week, and everyone have a great weekend and Lord's Day.